you're not the boss of me now and you're not so big. Welcome to Life is Unfair, the Malcolm the Middle podcast where we are watching and discussing each episode of Malcolm in the Middle one by one in chronological order. And today we are discussing the season one finale, Water Park. Uh, it was directed by Ken Quapis, written by Maggie Bander and Bonnie Landrum. I'm Jake and I think you'll find I podcast with my whole ass. Did I steal your intro line, David? Uh-huh. It's been a while, nice. <laughs> I'm David, and I wasn't eating it, I was saving it. So before we get to this week's episode, we need to look back at last week's episode for our Twitter polls on the shittiest and least shitty kids. For shittiest kid last episode, we both chose Francis for snitching his brothers out and bringing in his friends to, uh harass them and the internet unanimously agreed they also chose francis as the shittiest kid that's because the internet people are smart jake fair well in the least shitty kid category we had a slight disagreement as david chose dewey because he's dewey and i chose malcolm for trying to help francis not be sent to a work camp in Arizona, which we got into some arguing about whether the results of that plan should be the primary factor or his motivations. <laughs> but the internet agreed with me also unanimously. They also chose Malcolm as least shitty kid. That, that Malcolm was the least shitty kid? He wasn't. Uh, I'm just saying, I think you're going to have to step up your Dewey arguments from... He's a perfect angel, end of argument. I think you're going to have to add just a tad more to those. Oh, okay, sure. He's a perfect angel who didn't do anything. Oh, by the way, have you seen his brothers? They're pieces of shit. Save that kid. Uh, and with that sprouting of anger, let's go to this week's episode. <laughs> this episode starts with what, for me at least, is one of the iconic cold opens. Uh, it's a very simple, very short one. It starts with the boys sitting in their room, then Hal barges in and asks, who wants to make five bucks? And in the background, you uh, start to hear Lois reacting to something, which we never see. But you can assume it's horrendous. Yes, uh, as, as the cold open progresses, uh, she gets more and more incredulous by whatever it is she's seen. But Malcolm asks what he did, and uh, Hal says, no questions. Uh, you just need to take the fall for something. You can't know what. Which, as Lois continues to yell in the background, Malcolm agrees to do it as long as Hal raises it to $10. And Hal says, you're a good son. Uh, grabs him by his shirt and pulls him out of the, the room yelling, I got him, honey. Ah, yes. Framing your own children. What a wonderful pastime. But moving on to the episode proper, this time we have a three-way split in the plot. We have an A-plot centering around Hal, Lois, Malcolm, and Reese as they go to the water park. We have a B-plot focused on Dewey as he has to stay home with an ear infection. And an F-plot centered around Francis and a game of pool with Spangler. Yeah. As usual, we'll start with the F-plot. By the way, it's not a game of pool, Jake. I, I think you ineptly failed to articulate the fact that this is a clash of titans. Fair enough. Uh, this is one of my favorite Francis Ball. I just probably my favorite Spangler episode. I can see that. It's pretty great. <laughs> it's hilarious. 
I love I love the F plot in this. It begins with Spangler and Francis playing a game of pool, which Spangler is winning, uh, and he's sort of taunting Francis and telling him he's not disciplined as he does. When Spangler goes to make a shot, he misses, uh, giving Francis a chance to win. Uh, he just has to sink the eight ball. Uh, but when he does, he, he successfully sinks the eight ball, but he also scratches, which for anyone who doesn't know pool means the cue ball uh, also went into one of the pockets which means he loses. Spengler continues his taunting and his lecturing, basically telling Francis that he'll never be a winner in life. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty harsh. Uh, it is, but it's very on brand for Spengler. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, everything rides on everything. It's a very militaristic view, you know? <laughs> Look, if you can't dodge a wrench, then you'll never be able to satisfy a woman. If you can't play pool... When we come back to the F-plot, Francis is in Spangler's office where he's been called in because the sheriff's department called Spangler to report that a cadet matching Francis's description uh, has been hustling players at a local bar in pool. Francis immediately starts to do his usual sort of backpedaling and explaining until it's revealed that Spangler is upset with him, not because he's in trouble with the law, but because he's been letting Spangler win. That's right. How dare you not give me a real game? Spangler was insulted because his skills were not truly put to the test, and he was in a competition that he thought was fair, and that is not the case. I get I get his insult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Spangler demands that Francis pay, play him in a real game of pool, and he threatens him saying that if he loses their game, whether it be because he throws it or he legitimately loses, then France is going to have to wake up at four in the morning every morning for 230 days. Yes, and he's going to have to stand at attention after raising the flag for three hours until the morning reverie. Did you just call it reverie? Yeah. Reveille. Whatever. I know you don't care about that stuff but you should. Meh. I get to hold it over your head because I know more about it, so fuck you. <laughs> and your real motivation is revealed. Yes, instantaneously. <laughs> there was no guys. Then we see Francis practicing for his game with Spangler, uh, which some of the other cadets come in, and they threaten him, saying he has to let Spangler win because the last time Spangler lost to a cadet, they had to watch nothing but PBS for a week, and it was Pledge Week. <sighs> that sounds awful. It does. And I say that as a fan of PBS. But, uh, Pledge Week is rough. Yeah. Also, uh, I like that the cadet drinks from a PBS mug. <laughs> yes, that's how they end that scene. Essentially, the punchline is after all of that complaining, one of them takes a drink out of a coffee mug that's clearly labeled PBS. Yes. <laughs> that's how they get you. I may or may not have had a coffee mug at one point. Yeah. Never had a coffee mug. I have had a PBS tote bag. That would have been way cooler. Because at the time, I didn't drink coffee. Which is why I don't still have it. Fair enough. It was like pre-coffee drinking years. And to be fair, you had a very brief window of coffee drinking in your life. I was almost a decade. A very brief period of coffee drinking. Okay, fair. It's not my fault that it almost killed me. When it stopped me, David. I know. Uh, but back to the episode. <laughs> With Francis in a no-win situation... It's implied he, he has decided to go with Spangler's punishment rather than the beating from his fellow cadets. Uh, as we see him missing a shot that would have won him a game, Spangler taking a shot and also missing, and then they have a little aside where uh, they, they both call each other out for intentionally missing their shots, and Spangler reveals that his intention is now to lose the game rather than win. 
Yes. It's a very interesting little detente that ends up ensuing after this. Yes. Uh, which, when Spangler learns that if Francis does manage to win, the cadets are going to beat him, that only further motivates him. Oh, God, yeah. This is a win-win for Spangler. Yeah. Just period. Yeah. Francis is just straight screwed. Yes. And I love it. It's amazing. Then we get a sort of extended montage of the two of them playing uh, just game after game where they are both intentionally losing. With very skilled shots. Like, shots that are... Like, if it happens to me, it's like a one-in-a-lifetime, like, fluke. And the intention is very well made clear in this that they're doing it on purpose. Which, by the way, as someone who used to play a lot of pool, is really difficult uh, yeah, I, I assume so. It definitely does a good job of selling that the, the manner in which they're both intentionally losing takes more skill than it would for either of them to win. Oh, 100%. Because also, I mean, look at where they're getting. They're going after the eight ball in almost every single one of those shots. Which means these guys are playing real pool and knocking everything else in, or at least most of it, and then getting to their shot to win the game and then being like, oops. Yeah. Which is just amazing and such a thing in pool. It, again, it, I could go into a real deep dive in pool. Now, this is no Uncle Phil and Fresh Prince pool scene, but this is this is probably my second favorite television pool scene that I have ever seen. That takes up the bulk of the rest of the F-plot. We just uh, comes back a couple times to the two of them going back and forth with their losing with the uh, both them and the cadets who are watching getting increasingly invested in watching it. Then it ends with Spengler uh, once again losing a game uh, and everyone cheers when he does. He has a sort of nice little moment with Francis, a uh, shared respect moment, uh, and one of the cadets turns and asks another cadet who won, and he answers, who cares? Yeah. It was pretty great, yeah. Basically, because of how it's cut and the montage way that they do it and the way you keep coming back to it throughout the episode, it sort of gives the impression that uh, the games kept going for so long that the rest of the cadets, like, lost track of who they, like, cared about winning. And Spangler and Francis sort of gained this respect for each other and their skill level in each trying to screw each other over. Yeah. So it, it, it was a lot of fun to watch. I, I, I really like this scene and we're going to talk about one of my favorite parts of it later. Fair enough. From there, let's go to the A plot since it sort of establishes the B plot. Plus the B plot ends on a cliffhanger. It sure does. A terrifying one, I might add. Uh, kind of, yeah. As I already said, the A-plot centers around a trip to the water park. And of course, it begins at the, the same way the pilot episode of Malcolm Middle begins, with Hal being shaved by Lois. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> He's gotta get slick like an otter. That's right. <laughs> uh, and he is once again sitting in the kitchen in his tidy whities at the kitchen table being shaved. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, this time he's in his tidy whities Last time he was naked was the... Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Because yeah. the newspaper's blocking the, the groin area. It's true. And he's got the leg lifted up and all that, yeah. Fair also, he makes the comment about, I feel 10 pounds lighter. Jesus. Relatable content. <laughs> uh, maybe for you, Jake, but Jesus. <laughs> that's a hairy man. Uh, and Reese makes it uh, sound that like it takes two days to go through the entire process of shaving him. Or no, Malcolm Malcolm does, does yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Malcolm says that they have to prep for two days before going to the water park. Yes. Yes. Uh, which they can go to the water park because Hal got free tickets from his work. Dude, that is so my childhood. As they're all talking about their preparations and how excited they are because they haven't had a family outing in a long time, Dewey wanders into the kitchen and he clearly has no clue what's going on. And when he asks, it cuts from him asking to him sitting in Lois's lap crying. Poor Dewey. Uh, asking why he can't go. Lois explains it's because he has an ear infection. She reassures him that it's not always going to be this way, despite the fact that there is a pattern that seems to be forming. Yeah, look, here's the deal. All right, break story time here. This is easily the most relatable moment I have ever had in this show with Dewey. A hundred percent this was my early childhood. I know exactly how Dewey feels. I still have never been to King's Island because I always get fucking sick when we travel. This is bullshit. The first time my family went to Devil's Tower, tonsillitis had to stick in the fucking RV. Couldn't even see the tower from the fucking window, and I was too sick to move and too little. And uh, my mom stayed with me most of the time, but there was still a large chunk of time where I was just left alone in the RV. That was fucking great. Uh, then, the trip to come see you fuckers in Ohio. Everything's fine, everything's great, and then you and I go out and play in the fucking heat all day, and I'm not used to the humidity and heat, but I am used to playing outside all day, and I get fucking sick from it, and uh, I get left at home with the other sick person, who I think was your sister Jackie. I don't remember which one, but I got left home with one of the teenage girls, who was also sick, and Everyone else went to King's Island, and I missed out on that. By the way, side note, I also puked on my Game Boy and ruined the Game Boy in that. That was fucking awful, because the Game Boy was my only entertainment on the ride to see you guys. I was playing it by streetlight, because I didn't have one of the fancy lights. But anyways, look, there's at least three other trips that I can keep going down this, that every single time you get to, like, the penultimate, like, this is the thing we're coming here for, and I'm sick. Bullshit. I feel you, Dewey. I'm sorry. Don't listen to what Lois says about sticking... Well, okay. Stop sticking dirty things in your ears. But no, this is not your fault, okay? This is fate punishing you for being perfect. They're trying to drag you down to their level, all right? And I've been there. I get it. It sucks. Persevere. You'll be fine. So the, the other things Dewey has missed out on are a trip to Disneyland and a tour of a chocolate factory, by the way. <laughs> Given the way like their economic status especially in this episode are probably like the only two other vacations that have happened in his lifetime i'm sure again i feel that going to devil's tower was like a big thing we were so poor when i was young missing that was like what the fuck due to the boys being themselves uh hal is having issues rounding up a babysitter malcolm turns to camera and explains that uh, they have issues with babysitters and we get a little <laughs> montage I love Hal's line on the phone. Are you going to bring it up later in the awards, or do you want to say it now? No, I'll, I'll talk about it now. So yeah. Hal's talking to the babysitter that he's trying to convince to come in to, to watch the boys, and he's, no, no, it's just the young one. The other two boys are going to be nowhere near you. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love, because it also depicts, by the way, that Hal, the truth speaker, has declared Dewey the least shitty kid. But anyways... Go ahead. How's a lot of things. I don't know that truth speaker is one of them. Mm, no, it's it's his title. 
No, I feel like if anyone gets that title, it's Lois. No, she gets way cooler ones. But regardless, the montage consists, uh, first we see a uh, babysitter standing over a crib, talking about how cute whichever baby is in the crib is. Uh, Then they stick their hand in the crib and scream as they're bitten. (laughs) Then the second one, we just have a view of the outside of the house, and we hear a babysitter asking, Oh, what's that you have behind your back? Followed by screaming as they run out of the house. That's, I I get that. Then the final one, uh, we see the closet door in the boys' room with a chair propped up uh, to keep it closed. As the babysitter uh, pounds on the door, asking to be let out, saying that he's claustrophobic. Then it slowly pans over to Malcolm and Reese, who are just sitting on the bed, staring at the closet door with blank expressions. While Malcolm eats a banana. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Then after this montage, it cuts back to Malcolm still turns towards camera, uh, and he says, I'm starting to think it might be us. Look, Malcolm's bright, but he doesn't pick up on things quick. Uh, It's it's his normal (laughs) day, but he doesn't understand how shitty they are. (laughs) That's no excuse, Jacob. From there with the A-plot, we see the family driving to the water park, where Hal is sort of teasing Malcolm by asking if he is going to get on the liquidator this year. <sighs> such a good name. It, it is such a good name for a water slide. Uh, then they do a pretty good job of expressing that he's nervous about this water slide, like, even before they get there. It's very clearly, like, a big thing for him to try to go on it. Yep. Then Reese brings up that Malcolm has sinus issues and is supposed to wear nose plugs, which Lois, uh, Brings up that she forgot them and uh, just tells Malcolm to be careful. But fortunately, Reese is there to pull them out and say, don't worry, I made sure to bring them. Yeah, what a hero. As Malcolm shoots him a stabbing look. Yes. This is the start of a war between Reese and Malcolm. Correct. We'll go on through the rest of the episode. Yes. The escalation of power is real. And Lois informs Malcolm he's going to have to wear his nose plugs all day. He's going to be in trouble if she sees him without them. But I'm not even in the water. Uh, When they get to the water park, Hal and Lois decide that they are going to make this their tropical vacation that they never got to go on because they had kids. Hal has brought Malibu rum hidden in a uh, sunscreen bottle. Yes. They'll never know the difference. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, just I can't help but imagining like the mixture of the taste of sunscreen and Malibu rum. Well, it's not quite sunscreen; it's suntan lotion. True. Specifically, it looks like I'm trying to remember the name of that brand. It was like a big thing. It looks exactly like the suntan lotion that my next door neighbors used to use and i only know that because i once got it squirted in my eye by them when they got mad at my brother and i and thought that it was gonna be funny well i should say got mad at my brother but i was you know casualties yeah as is most stories involving those two but yeah uh a hundred percent got that shit squirted in my eye and it's that old brown bottle shit i really wish i could remember but I know it when I see it immediately, because I'm like, that shit sucks if it's in your eye. Then you see how squirting it into his fucking mouth and just, uh So gross. Hal, you're better than that. Get more creative. Come on. Apparently he's not, David. I know. <laughs> Which Lois is also very proud of his ingenuity. Yes. He's so cute when he sneaks in alcohol. 
<laughs> Which, by the way, implies that he just does this all the time. Oh, yeah. From there, we see Malcolm and his first act of retaliation against Reese, which he asks him about a girl that apparently Reese has mentioned before that he likes, and he asks him, uh, and why do you like her again? And Reese explains that he likes her, what's the word? He, uh, because she's trampy. And she kisses with tongue. Yep. Uh, then Malcolm asks, is that true, April? Uh, and it's revealed that she was standing right behind Reese the whole time. And calls him a jerk and stomps off. Yes. Which, fair. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, but I mean, Reese is an asshole. We've, we've been over this. Yeah. Which then leads to the boys fighting. And for the first time, we get Lois yelling at them to uh, stop fighting. And getting up from her little beach island vacation spot with Hal. Yes. Then the next time we come to the water park, Malcolm is at the is going up the slide. Uh, he's climbing the stairs, which are lined with various caution signs. Not not just caution signs in other languages, but like escalating caution signs in English as well. It it reminds me of, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this later. But it reminds me a little bit of the old water park that was in uh, Thermopolis. The, the big slide that yep. they had for a long time. Malcolm is at the top of the slide, uh, sitting there. He's got his little standard uh, speech from the attendant at the top of the slide, which is one of those nice little details, because it's just, like, pitch and, like, word perfect, the exact speech they have to give, like, every time at every water park ever. A hundred percent. But Malcolm is staring down the tunnel, and he's going to go in three, two... One and as he gets to one, he walks away. It Is it like the other way around? It, it might yeah, be the other way. I think it's one, two, three, because he drags it out as he walks away. Yes, and he does the walk of shame back down the stairs. Yep. With people in line staring at him in judgment. Been there, um, done that one. Then he passes Reese, who insults him. Then grabs his nose plug, pulls it back, and snaps it into his face. Uh, and when we come back, it is Hal and Lois in one of the pools having a disgusting romantic moment as the, the, the camera sort of pans through like the other people in the pool. Why are you going to call it disgusting, Jake? Because it's disgusting. It is pretty gross. <laughs> uh, and when it gets to Hal and Lois, they're, they're kissing. Then when they pull away, Hal spits out a Band-Aid. It alludes to that they were kissing underwater. Yeah. And taking water into their mouths, which alludes to some other things that I don't even want to think about, Ugh. especially in a public pool. Ugh. Right? Like, look, I've been there, but the fuck? There's some things you just don't do. Especially, like, this is a crowded water park. This is not, like, a hotel pool or, like, somewhere that's, like, secluded or something. You know, like... There's literally people, like, that's part of the intro to this scene, is, like, they are, like, underwater, and it's, like, shown that they bumped into somebody. Yeah. Oh, it's weird. Yeah. That's, that's that Malibu rum. Clearly. I get it. I've seen what happens on spring break, and the only thing that I can think of is Malibu rum. Fair enough. Because I don't drink it, and I can go to the beach, and I don't act like that. It's the only difference between me people acting like that malibu rum 100 uh, percent. I, I don't as someone who drinks malibu rum i don't think that's the case we then see uh malcolm with his retaliation for reese's retaliation this time reese is in one of the wave pools just splashing kids and laughing about it yep specifically like a couple of them look like younger females yeah yeah uh which 
given what we've seen of Reese trying to flirt, means he could be that. Yeah, I think he just thinks they're cute. Yeah, yeah. Especially he does have a very similar laugh here as he does in that that, that other. Person. I was about to say, yeah, he's got the hyena laugh going. Yeah. But seeing this, Malcolm goes to the lifeguard and points out Reese, uh, who's sort of flailing in order to splash, and he says, "You have to help my brother. He can't swim." Oh, what a dick move, but so good. It is very clever. Yeah. Uh, the lifeguard, uh, of course, jumps in and pulls Reese out in front of everyone. And then uh, as a crowd forms around him, the lifeguard goes to, like, wave the crowd off. And when he does, a stranger from the crowd starts giving Reese CPR, specifically mouth-to-mouth. Yeah, I wouldn't say CPR. I'm trained and have been for years. It's definitely not proper CPR. It's not CPR. Two second breaths, Jake. It's assault. I'm willing to give it, like, the benefit of, like, it's a guy who doesn't know how to do CPR, who's only seated on TV, trying to be a good Samaritan and just being unintentionally. Look, I'm with you, and I could maybe agree with that, except for the knowing look on the lifeguard's face when he, like, pulls the dude off, and he's like, sir... Let the people who work here do that. And it's not like a like an emergent tone of like let trained people do that. It was I don't know. And it could be bad acting. I'm not sure, but it a hundred percent came across more to me as like the person who's just dealt with this dude before. Like this is not a first time scenario. Yeah, I can see that reading. Fair enough. It's just weird. Yeah, but but I'm gonna choose not to look into it that way. <laughs> Well, you wear your rose-colored glasses. I've been out in the real world for too long. Uh, this is a TV show, David. It doesn't need to be that real. <laughs> they don't need to be, but they keep trying to be, and it's weird. From there, we go to uh, Malcolm sitting down next to Hal, sort of being standard whiny Malcolm, and complaining about how he's not going to have any fun in this trip anyway, so he's just going to lay down and enjoy the sun, which uh, Hal has no issue with. <laughs> as long as we're on the same page. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but when Malcolm lays back to enjoy the sun, he is almost instantly hit in the face with a jock strap. A wet one. Yeah. Which raises the question, because obviously Reese threw this. Uh, where did Reese get this jock strap? I don't want to know. Best case scenario, he found it floating in a pool. Which means there's a grown ass man <laughs> naked in this public pool. Also, who wears a jock strap to the pool? Like, it's. Yeah. There's a lot it's, of issues here. It's not even a pool. Like, if it was, like, a gym pool, like a YMCA situation, it could be like, he got it out of a locker room. This is a fucking water park. Right. And this is a jock strap, Like, straight up cup holder jock strap, yeah. Not not jockstrap speedos or anything like that or like jockstrap brand underwear no this is this is a fucking cup holder that's what this is a hundred percent it's gross yes also it comes on the heels of the previous creepy scene. <laughs> where did he get the jockstrap uh, putting that question aside it's just two weird gross scenes back to back is all uh, i'm saying i mean if you if you want to get into the realism of it it's three Oh, yeah. Because oh, the yeah. Next thing, uh, Malcolm's next retaliation is to pants Reese uh, in front of one of the pools. A whole crowd in the bleachers plus the wave, uh, the like splash pool of the big slide, uh, which again includes the quote trampy girl that Reese has a crush on because she's trampy. April, yes. I think. Yep, her name yeah. is April. 
Yeah, I remember things. Look at me having a brain. Good job, David. Then, Malcolm is sort of celebrating his triumph. We, we see Reese instantly get very angry, and it's clear that Malcolm has crossed a line. <laughs> <laughs> Mal- Malcolm starts to, like... Because they have this thing going as they continue to escalate. And it is whenever they would, you know, do something to the other, they would say, now we're even. Which is is another thing that is 100% like just one of those nicely observed, accurate things that siblings do. Oh god, yes. A hundred percent. Malcolm starts to say, now we're even, and he gets to about, now we and then he realizes Reese is going to literally murder him. And yes, it, it cut to chase scene. Uh, yes, because Reese chases Malcolm, and Lois, seeing Reese chase Malcolm, starts to chase both of them. There's a specific thing that causes her to pay attention to chasing them. Do you remember what it is? I do not. Okay, so Malcolm runs past the parents and goes on the outside. Reese, in his rage, cuts between Hal and Lois, who are at a, uh, like, concession stand. Lois is holding a, a thing of, like, a chili dog, and Hal has a thing of nachos. And Reese plows right through it and sends it all flying up into the air and covers Hal in chili and nacho cheese. I'm starting to try to pay attention to all the substances Brian Cranston has been covered in for this show. As they are running uh, up the stairs to the uh, slide that we saw before, Malcolm is trying to apologize while running. And explaining how his guilt over this action is clearly punishment enough. They reach the top of the slide. Reese pulls back to punch Malcolm. Uh, but when he does, Lois grabs his fist uh, and she starts to lecture the boys at the top of the slide with a long speech about how they are poor and they don't get second chances on their vacations. Uh, in what would be a very good speech except some uh, pretty blatant racism by Lois at one point. But she she asked them if they think they're aboriginals. Oh yeah. Uh. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember there was something that made me cringe about this, and I couldn't remember what word she used. As we were rewatching, we got to it, it was like, yeah. I remember this being a really great speech that ends really shittily, but I don't remember why. <laughs> but as she is giving this lecture, Malcolm and Reese are having a silent conversation purely through their facial expressions. Yes, as they are watching her teeter near the edge. Yes, as Malcolm very clearly realizes that with one small push, he could send Lois down the slide away from them. And surprisingly, Reese is like, through his gestures, telling Malcolm, don't do it. Then when Lois picks up on this silent conversation and says, don't you dare, (laughs) and points at them, Malcolm lightly touches her finger, sending her down the slide. Then Reese, amazed, turns to Malcolm and says, that's the bravest thing you've ever done. Malcolm says, I know. Then Reese says, you know you're dead, right? And Malcolm says, I know. And then, in very cartoon fashion, Lois reaches out of the tunnel of the slide and grabs the boys and drags them to their watery grave with her. Uh, yes, and we get a shot of, like, the outside of the slide as they all go down it screaming. Then when they reach the uh, pool at the bottom, they splash Hal and his second set of nachos. Poor Hal. Poor Hal. He never gets his nachos. Uh, and that is how the A-plot ends. Meanwhile, back at the house, we'll pick up with Dewey's babysitter arriving. Yes, dude, 
the minute I saw this person, I was like, no way that's her. Yeah. Uh, it's be fucking Arthur. You're fucking right it is. And they start with her talking to Lois, and she's turned away from camera. So, like, if you aren't as familiar with B. Arthur as Jake and I, you, you probably won't recognize her at this point. And then you get Lois talking to her and, and thanking her company for giving them a second chance. Yes, then she whispers to Dewey, don't hurt her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Poor Dewey. It wasn't his fault. True. Poor B. Arthur. Uh... Dude, she was great. Oh, yeah. B. Arthur is awesome. She's phenomenal. Yes. Like... Not not within the show, Golden Girl. She's not my favorite character. No. But like, outside, like, as actual people, <laughs> B. Arthur is the best Golden Girl. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I'm I'm a big fan of Betty White, too. Yeah. Like, but yeah, B. Arthur is just so classy. Like, I feel like B. Arthur, the person, is the, the, like, symbol of what the Golden Girls, like... Everything that that show, like, tried to do and create and be, she just was that as a person. Yeah. And whereas Betty White's just way funnier. Like... They're very different kinds of funny. That's true. B. Arthur has a very dry sense of humor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's very, like, British funny. And I love yes. it. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying B. Arthur's not funny. When we first check in on uh, them at home together, uh, we just see them sitting silently on the couch... Dewey asks, can I watch TV? No. Can I play video games? No. What can I do? Something quiet. At which point, Dewey uh, takes a toy truck and starts, like, rolling it across the table. Something quieter. Then we see Dewey sort of moving his truck in the air in sort of a wave formation. (laughs) It was quieter. It was quieter. Good on you for following instructions, Dewey. And the next time we come to them, they are sitting at the kitchen table, which is covered in buttons. Yes. Such a great scene. Also, the thought of the fact that she's just traveling with all of these and has, like, come with this as an activity... And the way that this is shot when you first... I just love this scene. As they are sorting the buttons, B. Arthur, whose name, by the way, in this episode is Mrs. White, but we're going to keep calling her B. Arthur. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I had to remember, like, I had to Google to remember what her golden girl name is because I know her as B. Arthur so much that she's the only golden girl whose name I couldn't remember. Like, Uh, character name. Shame on you, David. It's Blanche. Come on. Really? Did you just call her Blanche? Uh Uh-huh. Get the oh, fuck out. Sorry, sorry. It's Sophie. Get the fuck out. It's Dorothy. I know, Dave. I know. <laughs> Get out of here. Leave my basement. Look, you better be careful. If my wife hears you talking like that about the Golden Girls, she might literally kick you out. I love the Golden Girls. I was making a joke, David. Dewey has put one of the buttons in his mouth. When she accuses him of eating one of her buttons, he says, not eating, saving. Yeah, because he liked that one. It's his favorite. It's pretty. Yes, and when she looks at it, she says, yeah, it's my favorite too. Then she shows Dewey another button and asks his opinion on it, and he says, it's ugly, I hate it. She says, I hate it too. You're a smart boy. (laughs) (laughs) Then when we come back to the house again, they are sitting in a blanket fort. Dewey is explaining that one time he was talking to his imaginary friend, And Reese beat him up and said he was stupid for talking to himself. And that Reese sounds like a horrid little boy. It's it's correct. 
She's right. Yeah. Oh, she a hundred percent is. <laughs> she's B. Arthur. Of course, she's right. Uh, but she explains that she also has an imaginary friend named Harold, which I think is like the most obtuse reference ever, <laughs> because I think, and if not, it's a weird coincidence. That it's a reference to her being the lead in the show Maud, like through like seven degrees to Kevin Bacon style connection by ma- by making a Harold and Maud reference, which Dewey uh, then offers cookies to Harold, uh, which he quickly points out he is offering in the wrong place. Yeah. Harold's over there. Yeah, clearly. Well, you got to sell it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then we have a scene which we'll be talking about in detail later, for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, to, to quickly say, it's uh, Dewey and B. Arthur dancing to Fernando by uh, that's Ava, right? Pretty sure it's Ava. I think you're right, but the way you said it made me question it. It's, it was one of those things that when yeah. I wrote it yeah, in my notes, I was certain. Okay, it's a hundred percent Ava. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. I also knew that it was ABBA until you said that it was ABBA that way. And I was like, is he right? Am I right? But uh, yeah, that's all we'll say about that for now. Because yeah. we're going to talk about the rest here in a second. <laughs> Hell yeah, we are. Uh, but B. Arthur leaves. <laughs> uh, wow. What a way to say that. Well. <laughs> I mean, you're right. She technically leaves. Dewey uh, waves goodbye, then turns because he sees a balloon flying in the wind and proceeds to chase it. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a very Dewey move. Then the final scene we get uh, is Dewey still chasing the balloon until it pops. Uh, Then the camera zooms out, revealing that he is in Chinatown, which Dewey sort of looks around, clearly lost. Then he sees a bag flying in the wind, a paper bag, and starts chasing that. I mean, might as well. He doesn't know where he's at. Uh, And then we get a to-be-continued. Yep, that's sad. I want to watch the next episode. Dewey's alone, Jake! Dewey is alone. In the city! Yes, it's like uh, Babe 2. Wouldn't know. It's a very good movie. I doubt it. No, it's it's like a legitimately great movie. Still doubt it. Okay, uh, well, since we've been alluding it, alluding to it already, I assume we have the same choice for our roller skating king award best visual moment. We sure do, but I feel like it's for different parts of this. Uh, mine's kind of a two-part thing. But the the scene alone and the way that it sets everything and frames this character, who you literally get to see for what ten minutes. Probably less. And you have all of this interesting and yet well-written and well-thought-out, like, character development. I thought it was a super clever way and a great way to use B. Arthur and have her be a cameo in the show. I was really concerned after the first scene that they were going to have her just, you know, be the stuffy old gal who says no to everything and the proper British nanny. And if that had been the case, I'd have been pissed. I think it would have been a different approach. I think that could have worked as well. As long as you find a way to portray some sassiness and attitude behind the prim and proper, then yes. But B. Arthur is not a person in life or on screen who has ever portrayed someone who doesn't have some flair or attitude to her. Fair. Especially in life. Like, holy crap, you should read her biography some. I know you probably have, but even if you don't agree with her stances on things or anything, just how she went about things. Just phenomenal. (laughs) Especially when you put it into context of, like, 
the era that she was doing those things in. Like, very much so. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, Golden Girls and Mod, which are like both uh, like behind the scenes, like she had a lot of influence on, hold up very well, both like as shows and as uh, like all the political stuff that they delve into a lot. They both hold up shockingly well. A lot of the social made. issues too. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, yeah, and I, I think a large part of both of those shows holding up so well is because of the Arthur. Yeah, I would agree. But the, the scene that we're talking about, since we haven't actually said, <laughs> right? We just kind of talked around it. Uh, is the dance scene with Dewey and B. Arthur, in which Dewey like makes a mustache. What, what does he use? It's she takes chocolate and smears it on his upper lip in in like a little like sort of French or Italian mustache, like a very very fine trimmed looking uh, small pencil style. I know there's a name for it, and it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't I can't think of it. That's very specific style of of facial hair, but uh, it's it's kind of the classic movie uh representation that they would use of of like your italian or frenchman dewey throws a thing of cereal over his shoulder which b arthur is all for and he turns the specifically it is a circular tub of like cornflakes it looks like i think so yeah and he throws it uh, and then he turns this Tupperware thing into a drum and proceeds to drum along with Abba to the beat of Fernando. And then Dewey is standing on the table, by the way, for all of this. Yeah. Uh, to make him, you know, a little taller than B. Arthur. And, uh, or at least of relative height. And the whole time B. Arthur is, is dancing in a very, uh, I'm not sure what dance she was doing there. At one point it looks like a cha-cha, but it's not. But it's, it's very formal looking and, uh, you can tell she's really digging it. She pulls a rose out of a vase and, like, throws the vase and then gives the, uh, or no, I'm sorry, she... Dewey has the vase with the rose in it, and she takes the rose and has the rose before she throws it later on in the scene. And Dewey has the vase, which then he uses it as a microphone at one point. As he, like, dances now, really getting into it, having abandoned his Tupperware drum, and really just rocking out to some ABBA. Uh, and then how does this little dance end, David? Dewey, like a proper gentleman, uh, showing, by the way, that he has clearly been educated by B. Arthur, tangos a little bit with her, and then dips her like a true, proper gentleman. And as B. Arthur dips, he, he brings her back up, and then she turns around, and then she's dancing directly in front of Dewey in, again, sort of a modified tango style, and gets very excited, and Dewey's getting into it, and you just really feel this great connection between the two, and then the scene fades to black. And that's where this scene ends, Jacob. It does not fade to black, David. Shut the fuck up, it fades it, to black, Jake. hard cuts <laughs> to an ambulance. No, it fades to black. Again, it does not. It hard cuts to an ambulance as B. Arthur is taken away. I know. The, the implication, at least to me, being that she had a heart attack. No, that's that's very strongly. I just don't want to think about that. I mean, fair. B. Arthur's still alive, and, and you can't convince me otherwise. I mean, I feel like you have to put yourself in the mindset of when this came out... 
B. Arthur was B. still Arthur alive. Was still alive. I know. It wasn't nearly as dark of a joke. It was still a dark joke. But it's not like yeah. But it doesn't have the like gut punch that it has <laughs> now of all oh, B. Arthur. Right, dude. A hundred percent. Watching this is like, oh fuck. It literally. It feels like. It feels like what I'd imagine, like, showing the Golden Girls to a, a, a kid who's old enough to, like, appreciate it and, and watch it nowadays, and then being like, all of them are dead but Betty White. It, it is. It's it's super, like, because it's, it's, you have the angel herself, B. Arthur, bonding with the angel in training, Dewey, the little perfect semblance of everything, okay? It's a great scene. They're having fun, and uh, she's loosening up and, and, and really enjoying his company. He's learning how to be a classy gentleman from her, and then she's gone. The way they handle, like, not just how amazing that dance scene is, but then just, like, the hard cut to the ambulance. It's one of those moments that works both on, like, an emotional gut punch level, but also works as, like, a black comedy joke. Just such a good juxtaposition of just immediate transition of tone. And uh, this episode is directed by Ken Klops, and it's something I think he does really well uh, when he's directing on The Office as well, which is another show that I think handles, not usually as sudden, but a lot of, like, tonal shifts within an episode very well. That makes sense. And yeah, I, I, like I said, you, you see so much, like, character development and progression and, like, five minutes of B. Arthur. Yeah. Yeah. Like speaking ugh. of actors on this show, uh, some not nearly as big as B. Arthur, but did you recognize the girl playing April? Uh, she looks familiar, but I could not place her. No, uh, she is Amanda Fuller, who is another one of those like TV actors who's been in fucking everything. I immediately recognized her in the most me way possible. I was like, I think she died in Buffy, uh, and it turns out she, uh, she did. She's one of the and the last season, one of the chosen who uh, gets like killed before they ever get to Buffy. She's in one episode. Jacob, you uh, gotta stop watching Buffy, dude. <laughs> you gotta stop watching Buffy, man. But then I can't make these important connections, David. Jake, look, I've watched Buffy a lot. More than anyone else we know. And you, I think, still have doubled, at the least, my watch-throughs. Probably. Jake! <laughs> Dude, you need an intervention, bro. No. Yes, there's other shows. I know, sometimes I rewatch Angel. Back to back to Malcolm in the Middle. This was such a great scene, and Dewey standing on the table and getting into music that he's probably never heard before, and just the dance. It's so much of just a sweet scene, and it, it reminds me of... of you know, dealing with little kids. I mean, and it's it's a little ironic. Like, the whole time we were watching this, my son was on top of me and on the couch and dancing and wiggling around and, and throwing himself around and staring up at the projector because he heard ABBA and he was like, oh, that's a cool beat. Like, he doesn't know what good music is yet. You know, and neither does Dewey, but... I can forgive enjoying ABBA as far as, you know, enjoying pop music goes. There's worse. Oh, 100%. But yeah, no, I, I just... Uh, this is hands down one of the best scenes. I still think, hence why it's named that. I still still think the roller skating king uh, award is aptly named, given roller skates yeah. is easily the best visual moment I've ever seen on television ever. But the the scene here is absolutely great and absolutely 
the legendary B. Arthur definitely deserves a roller skating trophy. Yeah, and this is another one of my favorite episodes of this show. It's my second favorite of season one. It's probably like top five, like overall. Makes sense. It's just like a really good episode. Like compared to like roller skate, which is very much like a display for Brian Cranston. This is much more of a episode where every character gets to shine. And every plotline is just really solid. Yeah, I, I really like this one. It, it definitely, they they considered everyone and kind of the situations they were in rather than taking the characters for who and what they are and then just cramming them into a situation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that the situations evolve based on who the characters are rather than trying to force these like, and not to say that that doesn't work, because there's definitely been great episodes where they're like, how do these crazy people handle a normal thing that happens to everyone? And then, you know, stick them in a normal environment. You know, like, say, for instance, a family member's funeral. That was a weird episode. But anyways, but you get what I'm saying, though. Yeah. Like, I like these episodes where things just unfold based off the individual characters. But which plot line, David, was the A plot of your heart? Uh, Dewey's plot yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because B. Arthur. <laughs> yeah. Duh. <laughs> also, Dewey's a fucking perfect angel, and this episode proves it. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great Dewey episode. It is. Uh, should we go straight from there to least shitty kid? Yeah, because it's, it's Dewey. Dewey. Yeah. yeah, it's 100%. Yeah. I like that there's no <laughs> argument there. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, there might be some dispute as we go to shittiest kid. Did there... you choose Malcolm or did you choose Reese? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I had both written down for a minute. And I was like, man, I really have to choose. Like, Jake won't let me nominate both. Uh, David? Uh-huh. I also consider nominating both. <laughs> <laughs> but I chose Malcolm and here's why. He pushed his mom down a fucking water slide. Jesus. True. Head first. True, but she recovered. That's because she's Lois. That's, that's, that's no, 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 no. Listen, mm. if your if your mother is an angry Aldrich god, you get a tiny bit more leeway. I disagree. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'd have never done that. My mom would have killed me. So would mine, but it wouldn't stop me. And that's the difference between us, Jake. Fair. Respect. See, I respect my mother enough to shove her down a water slide. That's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. No, no, no. Listen, I would do it to any other member of my family, so it stands to reason, it's respectful, that I do the same for her. No! You respect her more than the rest of your family, so you save her from the shitty things you do to the rest of them. I'd shove the rest of my family down a water slide, but not my mom. Well, David, I think the real difference between us is you're a coward. Wow. Uh, but I, I do see your point, and I strongly considered Malcolm. There's also the pantsing moment, and purposely getting Reese to call a girl Trampy. Because uh, now, hang on, I agree. That's a hundred percent also a Reese thing. But anyways, Malcolm knows how shitty his brother is, and deliberately put her in the path of Reese's shittiness. You don't deliberately expose someone to a sexist, misogynistic moment like that, okay? That's fucked up. It's fucked up to be sexist and misogynist, don't get me wrong, but it's fucking worse, I would argue, to deliberately put someone in the path to be exposed to that. You know what, David? 
in a podcast first, I think you have swayed me. I'm switching my decision to Malcolm. Ha <laughs> uh, That's that's it's 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 right. Malcolm's a shit in this episode. Yeah. Moving on to our next award, what did you have for your best line? Ooh, this is one that I tussled with a ton. Yeah, there's a lot of great lines. There this. were, and there were like four B. Arthur quotes in here, like a couple of them on there just because B. Arthur said it. But what I actually finally went down to was, even though it wasn't in my favorite plot line, Spangler's quote when he's talking to uh, Francis when he pulls him aside, and he's it's kind of realistically the whole exchange there when when Francis asks him, uh, "What are you? What do you think you're doing? Losing?" And gracefully, I might add. <laughs> and then the the thing that really like stood out and made me select it is Francis continues to question him and he goes, I'm going down, cadet. I'm going down hard. <laughs> and it becomes a competition to see who can lose. Interestingly, I also chose a Spangler quote as my favorite line. <laughs> uh, but mine comes from the first scene uh, when Spangler is uh, beating Francis and Francis is letting him win. Uh, and he's giving him his little lecture. And Spangler says, once again, I waltz with Lady Victory. <laughs> Uh, which is interesting, because Dewey actually waltzed with Lady Victory. And tangoed. True. Oh, we've got one more fairly obvious before we move on to the one that I have a deep dive for. Uh, interesting. Favorite character? Uh, Spangler. Interesting. Um, so, again, I considered giving it to B. Arthur, and realistically it is B. Arthur. Yes, that is the correct choice and the choice that I made. But it's B. Arthur because it's B. Arthur. Also, I legitimately, I knew you were going to pick her. But 100%, I think it's that character, because, like, again, you see her for five minutes, and the amount of, like, character development is amazing. I chose Spangler because I knew he was my backup, and I enjoy this sort of clash of titans over a pool game, and this sort of pettiness of a gentleman's wager of losing, and, and this respect that develops between him and francis i i just i i love that so yeah if i can't pick b arthur or if i avoid picking her because i know you're going to nominate her i have to say spangler just so that he gets an honorable mention because he was great in this episode uh, fair enough as i said this is probably my favorite spangler episode yes. but b arthur yeah no 100 percent great character yeah uh, I, I feel like we've talked enough about it that i don't really need to add anything else agree and she's just perfect. Yeah. I mean, frankly, we should just be able to say B. Arthur. Podcast done. Move on. Okay. That's the B. Arthur episode. Yep. Okay. So moving on to our last award, I'll let you go first, David. Since uh, what, you have a deep dive. What did you have for your OK Boomer Award? The award we give to a moment or detail that sets the episode firmly within its time of release. So I was really looking for something in the background, but again... I was wrangling my son, who wanted to spend time with dad, but also, you know, one-year-olds. They don't like to sit still. <laughs> I, I didn't catch anything super crazy like I have a few times in the past. What really cements this where it belongs for me is the water slide itself. The walk up, the stairway up, the shot from underneath 
the water slide sort of showing this imposing spiraling enclosed tube. It reminds me of every water park I've ever been to my entire teenage life. And just the the imposing giant slide, you know. I remember the one in, I, I can't remember if it was Thermop or Cheyenne that goes like up a hill like a quarter mile and you have to like walk up like 36 flights of stairs or some yeah, shit to get to the top of it. Yeah, uh, and, and just like things like that all throughout my childhood, going to Six Flags for the first time and seeing like the, the big enclosed slides that go around everywhere and and being equally terrified but also excited uh knowing that you're probably gonna hurt yourself but it's okay because it'll be fun oh see i was a hundred percent a malcolm as a kid as far as being uh very afraid of heights especially i also was the difference is i wasn't a little chicken uh, mine was also the water park but much more specifically oh i'm sure the water park where they filmed which oh. was wild rivers water park in irving california Okay. Some very specific timestamp because it's been closed since 2011, but went down a weird rabbit hole. Uh huh. Of this water park has been in the process of reopening since 2012. In 2014, they rebuilt it, were going to open it, and then ran into uh, issues with their county, and <laughs> they wouldn't let them, which they went like back and forth on. We're supposed to open multiple times until 2019, they finally got all that sorted out. But most recently, Wild Rivers Water Park was supposed to open in May. Of this year. Oh, well, that explains a lot. Needless to say, it is still not open. Oh, shit. They... It's their fault for COVID. Maybe they're cursed. Yes. That's my random deep dive that I went on for this episode. Okay, well, that wraps this episode up. If you would like to get in touch with us uh, to let us know if we missed anything or send us any cool shit you find, uh, or if you just want to vote in our polls, you can find us on Twitter, where we are... <laughs> unfair underscore podcast or you can reach us by email where we are life is unfair pod at gmail.com also if you enjoy this sort of back and forth that jake and i have and want to talk to us and sort of enjoy video games at all you can go to twitch.tv slash lp where we stream video games every sunday monday and wednesday night with occasional other events throughout the week thanks for listening and remember life is unfair